So Dana and I just got back from spending like 10 days with my family, which was always, it's always fun getting to go and see family when you haven't seen them for a while. For us, none of our family is from here, so <laughs> we have to travel quite a bit um, to get to go see them. Um, we don't see them very often, so we got a good 10 days with my mom. Got to see my brothers and sisters and, and their kids, and we had a good time. But man, it is good to be home. <laughs> you know, sometimes you kind of feel like you need a vacation from your vacation. When you finally get home, it's like, I'm just so happy to be in my own bed and to eat my own food <laughs> when I want to eat it. It's just nice. It's nice to come back to what's familiar. Um, I'm going to be a little honest with you guys. The last several months um, have been kind of emotionally tough. Um, you know when you're just going through stuff and the people around you are just going through stuff and you... You feel a little beat up, you know. Um, it's been making me think a lot about when when the Bible talks about bearing one another's burdens. I think sometimes we kind of, I don't know, we think of it lightly, like in terms of, <laughs> you know, like, oh, let me carry this thing for you. Um, but it's, it's actually quite a heavy thing when you really think about it. When you're bearing one another's burdens, that's a lot of times when people are going through really hard things, that can be back-breaking work. Um, and it can leave you even, I think, a little worse for the wear. Um, you know, it's not, like, uh, it's not like we're just helping somebody carry in some groceries. Like, let me get those bags for you. You know? Um, has anybody seen Dirty Dancing? You know, she... <laughs> Probably not the best movie to quote, in movie, but uh, you know, she she goes up to the party and she, she's like, I, I carry the watermelon. It's not like that. <laughs> um, it can be tough sometimes, and um, and there's a real cost to it. But I think that there should be. Um, you know, as Christians, there should be a cost to bearing one another's burdens. Is there a real cost to me to help my friend through something? Um, Anyways, just thoughts that I've had. So we're going to start, um, I'm speaking tonight on the discipline of the Lord. Um, and we're going to start in uh, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 14. Let me just flip there real quick. And if you guys want to stand while I read this. Starting in verse 5. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. Lord, I just ask tonight that, um, that you speak to us. God, that you reveal to us um, just a little bit more of yourself, just a little bit more of your heart, God. That we might know you more intimately, that we might know you um, more deeply, God, and that we can... We can understand your truth, Lord, and understand that you always have our highest good in mind. Be with us tonight, Lord. And everybody said, Amen. Okay, so the Lord has been speaking to me. You guys can be seated. Sorry. Um, so the Lord has been speaking to me a lot lately on the consequences of sin. Um, partly because of what has been going on around me in the lives of those who are close to me, people I love very dearly, walking through some incredibly hard things, um, some very serious consequences. And I'm realizing that we, while we often look at consequences negatively, because more often than not, they are unpleasant, the Lord is showing me the goodness and the mercy in them. So what is a consequence? Webster's Dictionary defines it as the effect, result, or outcome of something occurring earlier. Sorry, I just need to laugh. Just something that occurred earlier. The word consequence comes from the Latin root consequentia, con meaning with or together. As, I don't know if I'm saying this right. Sequi, <laughs> which means to follow. Um, so in its essence, it's nothing more than the outcome or effect of our choices. That's a consequence. And this can be either a positive outcome or a negative one. And we learn this concept from a very young age. Like right now, we're teaching our children about this at various levels, according to their ages, constantly. For instance, Honor, who is two, is learning that when you throw something in anger, you lose that thing, um, even if you actually really wanted it. Um, Noble, however, who is three, um, until next month when he turns four, is learning <laughs> the consequences of how he treats other people. If he takes something from his sister, she will bite him. <laughs> you see? <laughs> Action, consequence. Okay? So tonight we're going to look at three things. The first one is what is sin? Without this understanding, we cannot understand the consequences that result from it. Okay? The second thing we're going to look at is the natural consequences of sin and how they apply to everyone. And then lastly, we're going to look at the discipline of the Lord and the line that it draws between those who are the Lord's and those who are not. Um, before I dive into these, I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable with you guys. Um, some of you 
have heard bits and pieces of what my life looked like before Jesus. Um, a handful of you have possibly even heard this very story. I'm looking at my resource. Um, but it might shock you to know that I was not always this wonderfully pleasant person standing before you today. Um, but there's no need to dig into all of the details of my childhood. Um, I do want to give you some context, though. Um, so I grew up in a family, um, not unlike some of you in this room, probably, broken by the effects of selfishness. Unfaithfulness, divorce, remarriage, blended families, manipulation, emotional abuse, and a whole lot of hurt and anger and bitterness in my heart as a result. By the time I was a senior in high school, the years of harboring unforgiveness in my heart and living in bitterness had so clouded my vision that I couldn't see beyond myself. I began to act out, to rebel, to do what I wanted to do, and I did terrible things. Spiteful things that not only hurt me, but often those in my life who were the most undeserving. My first year of college, I wasted away drinking and partying, skipping classes, and as a result, failed out of my second semester at Texas A&M. I moved back in with my parents, covered in shame, removed from my friends, who quickly moved on and forgot all about me. And I spent the next year in loneliness and isolation, going to class at the community college, ironically, where I first met Sean Waters. We shared a Spanish class together. I still don't speak Spanish. <laughs> then going to work, then going home. Wash, rinse, repeat. This was my life. I had no direction, no friends, no hope, and I was angrier than ever. My life lacked purpose. I distanced myself from my parents emotionally and continued to rebel in little ways. And each and every day our relationship became more and more strained. The summer after that year in community college, I got involved with this guy who worked at the pool I was managing. And one night we stayed out way later than I should have. And I remember pulling up to the house, walking through the door to find my parents sitting on the couch, waiting for me. Maybe some of you can relate to this. My stepdad looked at this guy and the first thing out of his mouth was, you can leave. To which this guy abruptly replied, yes sir, turned tail and ducked out the door as quickly as humanly possible. And I don't blame him. My dad was terrified. There I stood alone in the living room before my parents, my father stern-faced and silent, my mother in tears, not knowing what was about to happen but braced for the worst. I have never been more afraid in my life as I waited for him to speak. But you guys are gonna have to wait to hear the end of that story. See, it was my own selfishness that brought me to this point. The responsibility for the circumstances that I was in, in this moment, fell on me. My sin created my condition. My choices. Years after this, I remember my mother telling me that her constant prayer for me in this season of my life was that the Lord would bring me to the end of myself. That I would realize that I wasn't enough, and therefore find that God was. What a terrifying thing to have prayed over you. Can you imagine that? And yet, what a wonderful thing to have prayed over you. So what is sin? In 1 John, verses, verse, chapter 3, verse 4, tells us that sin is lawlessness. So what does that mean? 
Sin is lawlessness. The simplest definition for sin is missing the mark. Now, hear me on this, because when we first read that, missing the mark might sound like it's an accidental thing. Um, the implication of this, and in the context that we find the Greeks have used the word sin in, means that it always involves an act of the will. A deliberate choice was made. The mark was missed not by a mere accident or slip of the hand, but purposefully. Now, when we look at lawlessness, this doesn't mean an absence of law. I think oftentimes you kind of get this picture in your mind. I know, I do, like the Old West, you know, like the cowboys and the outlaws, and there's, everybody just kind of does what they want to do, and there's no real law. Um, this is very much not like that. When we, when we read lawlessness, what scripture is actually describing is a breaking of the law. So when we read sin is lawlessness, what we're really reading is that sin is a missing of the mark due to the deliberate choice and active will to break the law. Let me read that again. Sin is a missing of the mark due to the deliberate choice and active will to break the law. That is sin. This places the responsibility on us. Sin always involves a choice and an action of the will. And when there is willful disobedience, when we break God's law, when we try to circumvent the way to what we want outside the laws of God, we open the door to guilt and shame, and we have actually turned away from God altogether. G. Campbell Morgan says it really well. It was when I knew and disobeyed that I sinned. It was when I came to the parting of the ways and had the right, the power to elect, to choose, to decide, and I did so in the way of disobedience that I sinned. But there are also natural consequences for our choices. And these apply to every one of us. The natural consequences of sin can be very grave. But in the kingdom of God, the consequences of our sin, I believe, are actually a mercy. So what is a mercy? What is it? It's compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. It's not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. And you might be wondering, but how is that mercy when we're still facing the consequences? How can consequences be a mercy when we are still being punished for what we did? Now follow me here. In Romans 6, verse 23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. That is the real consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. What we are, each of us deserving of, is that. Death. And the reason for this is because God is so pure and so holy that he cannot dwell where sin is. His holiness will cast it out. When Moses went up to the mountain to speak with God, God hid him in the cleft of the rock and passed by him so that only his back would be seen by Moses. He's so holy that had Moses seen his face, it would have utterly destroyed him. And what happened after? 
He went walking down the mountain, glowing so brightly that he had to veil his face so that the people would not be afraid of him. That is how holy our God is. You see, the mercy of these consequences is that they act as the guideposts to turn us away from sin and back to the way of righteousness. They're warning signs that there is something very, very wrong in our life. Just like the nerve endings in our body send signals to our brain when we are injured and produce the sensation of pain, which tells us that something is wrong, something is hurting us, something needs to be fixed. So these consequences show us that the life we are living, the choices that we are making, are hurting us. And sometimes we're not the one that's really going through it. Sometimes we're watching someone near us face the consequences of their own choices. Um, And often that's harder, I think. But the best thing that we can do is let them face them. Right? So often we want to jump in and we want to be the hero. We want to save them. We want to rescue the people that we love out of that hard thing, out of the consequences of what they've done. We don't want them to have to feel that pain, right? It's hard to watch somebody go through something like that. Somebody that we really care about. It's a difficult thing. But the reality is that sometimes we need to let them come to the end of themselves and find that God is sufficient, right? The most loving thing that we can do sometimes is not fix it. It's simply to be there through it. Because the reality is that the ultimate consequence of sin is eternal separation from God. We call that death. God has another name for it. Hell. Eternally separated from God. Eternally separated from the very one who created us. I can't bear the thought. You see, sin always separates Always. It separates us from God. And he's heartbroken over it. The pages of the Old Testament are saturated with the pleading of a loving father for his children to turn away from the sin that is destroying them and return to his embrace. And it separates us from each other. Where there should be trust, there are lies. Where there should be compassion, there is prejudice. Generosity, selfishness, justice, injustice, love, hate, Where there should be peace, there is war. And all of this causes division and turns brother against brother, husband against wife, parents against their children. You see what I'm saying? Where there is sin, there will always be separation. But thank God, because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This is the purpose of the law of God. See, scripture tells us that without the law, there is no sin. God gave us the law so that we would have a clearly defined path toward righteousness. He didn't tell us to be holy without giving us directions toward that end. Right? Which brings us to our last point, the discipline of the Lord. Now, I need to pause here and clarify something. Some of you might be walking through some very hard things right now. And it might be because of something that you have done. 
It very well could be because you made a selfish decision and you're having to face the consequences from that choice. But sometimes the things that we are going through are the result of someone else's sin. Someone else made a choice and the consequences of that decision have affected your life. When my parents divorced, I was directly affected by that choice. It altered the reality of my life. And many of the hardships that I faced as a child were not because of something that I had done. Right? They were outside of my control. What was not outside of my control was how I responded to them. Okay? In the wake of somebody else's sin, I was still responsible for the choices that I made in the midst of those circumstances. I chose not to forgive. I chose to become bitter. And I chose to act out on my anger instead of taking all of these things to the Lord and asking Him to help me fix it. We are not exempt from responsibility because somebody else messed up. Now the laws of God are never cruel, and I want you to hear that. The laws of God are never cruel. <laughs> They're really just kind of common sense, right? Like how to be a friend 101, okay? What is love? What are we saying, Kayapa? Say it with me. Unselfishly choosing for the highest good of God in this kingdom, right? You could also say unselfishly choosing for the highest good of another, right? So, do you love me? Don't steal from me, right? Do you love me? Don't lie to me. Do you love me? Don't spread false rumors about me. Do you love me? Be faithful to me. But what happens when we disobey these laws? There are consequences for our choices. And hear me, disobedience is always a choice. It is never accidental. Disobedience is deliberate. Sin happens when we choose to act outside of these laws and so doing break them. What G. Campbell Morgan says is, seeking the God-created desire without the God-provided bread. I love that. The desire itself is not bad. It's how we went about to obtain it. Right? Very often the desire is actually from the Lord. He's created us in such amazing ways, in such unique ways. We all have different gifts and talents, different passions. The desire itself very often is not what's bad. It's not that. It's, it's that we're trying to cheat the system. Anybody who's played a sport knows that if you're going to win, you have to you have to follow the rules. Otherwise, what happens? You try to cheat and what? You get disqualified. Right? You can't cheat the system to get it faster. But we love instant gratification, don't we? We are a culture of instant gratification. If we can have it now, we're going we're gonna to do that thing. I have to wait 10 days? Oh, but I can have this one now. I'll take that one, please. And uh, in Nepal, they had a saying, and I love this saying, Aja China, Boli China. And, and what that means is, today China, tomorrow nothing. <laughs> uh, and they used it for a lot of things, but mostly in reference to the products that actually came from China. 
shocking, I know. Um, because you have them for maybe a day or two and then they break. That's what cheap looks like. You can get it now, cheaply, but it really is just the cheap alternative to the real thing, isn't it? It's not lasting. We cannot cheat the system in the kingdom of God. Okay? So discipline, <laughs> discipline is apart from the natural consequences of sin. It's not just a punishment for having done wrong, but a redirecting, a correcting, a training up in the way that we should go. That's discipline. I don't discipline my kids simply because they've messed up and they've made me angry. I discipline my children because I love them and I want them to grow up to be the best men and, wo and women that they can be. Right? I discipline them because I love them and I care about who they become. When we look back at that passage in Hebrews 12 that we read at the beginning, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Discipline does not exist where love is absent. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but as he said, to fulfill the law. To walk uprightly according to every one of God's laws, perfectly, the way that we never could. And so be the spotless lamb for the atonement of our sins. And what does Jesus tell us? If you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me. If you love me. I'll say it again. If you love me, obey my commandments. How do the people around me know that I love Jesus? Do I obey his laws? Do the people in your life know that you love Jesus? What is the impression of your life? Job 36, verses 8 through 12 says this. And if they be bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. And now hear this part. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Psalm 94, verses 12 through 14. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. He delights in us. Discipline is proof that the Lord has not overlooked us. 
It is proof that we are loved and seen. Have you ever felt that maybe he's forgotten about you? That he's left you to destruction? That he's left you in this mess and forgotten all about you? I have. Discipline is proof of ownership of our adoption as sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. Um, I've been reading a lot uh, of G. Campbell Morgan lately. It's so good. He's so wise. Um, and he preached on, we'll say, the decline of Peter. Um, from, from him declaring as Jesus, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, to denying him three times. And it was very interesting. You see, some of us have distanced ourselves from God. We're weary of his reproof. We're heavy under the burden of guilt or shame because we know in our hearts that what we're doing is sin. So how does one go from being so on fire for the Lord, so sure of who he is and his mission, to denying that we know him altogether? How do you get there? Right? He says this. When this man could not see Christ's method, he withdrew from absolute and unquestioning loyalty to his Lord. Wherein lay his mistake? It lay in the fact that he was not prepared to accept his master's estimate of necessity. Was not prepared to follow his Lord simply, even when he could not understand his Lord's method. The first step toward disobedience is down. Jesus' goal was never to sit on an earthly throne. Right? It was never about that at all. Peter let his imagination run away with him. Right? He began to dream his own dreams about Jesus' life and rise to power. He had his own vision and expectations for Jesus' rule. He thought he would come right in and take over everything. He wanted peace to a kingdom and Jesus was holding Morgan goes on into the steps that follow Peter's experience, and I'm not going to go into those except to say that the end result, we all know, was Peter denying Jesus three times. The last of which, while as Morgan so keenly points out, warming himself over the fires of the enemy and cursing his name. If I have realized anything in this recent season, it's that no one is immune to sin. Do you hear me on that? We are not immune to sin. Those who you hold in esteem as holy and pure and blameless and incapable of wrong, that missionary that you respect and look up to and want to be like, that small group leader who always has such wisdom when he or she speaks, or that mom who seems to walk out motherhood and marriage so gracefully, that man who sets the standard for the kind of husband and father that you want to be, we are not immune. Little by little, step by step, each of us are capable of walking in disobedience to the Father. We are all capable of choosing something else. The mercy of God is that when we fall, when we doubt, when we distance ourselves from his presence, when we stumble and walk in disobedience, when we really, and I mean really, mess up, he does not leave us to our destruction. 
He opens the door for repentance by allowing us to face our consequences. He allows us to see the real ugliness of our sin, to feel that insatiable hunger that will never be satisfied, the hunger that only ever increases because the things of this world were never meant to fill us, and it always takes more. He allows us to be brought to a point where we finally hate the sin enough to be rid of it. And then he offers us a way toward life. Real life. Everlasting life. Maybe you're facing some serious consequences right now. You're walking through something that is so hard and so dark that you feel you will never see the end of it. The light will not break through. You still have a choice to make. So back to my story. I'm standing before my parents awaiting my punishment. My mother is in tears as she sits beside my father. And he tells me that because I have refused to abide by their rules, because I have continued to live the way that I have been living, I could no longer live in their house. No longer would they support my lifestyle. I was cut off financially and I was given two weeks to find a new place to live and figure out where to go and what to do with my life. I was devastated. I would lost everything. And I'm telling you today that it was the most merciful, loving thing that they have ever done for me. You see, that very night I gave my life to the Lord. That very night. My mother's prayer that I would come to the end of myself was answered with that very thing. I no longer had a crutch to lean on so that I could continue to live a life of destruction. A life that they knew would lead ultimately toward death, even when I was too blind to see it myself. It brought me to real, genuine brokenness before the Lord, and for the first time in my life, I came before Him, honestly seeking truth. God, are all the stories true? God, I don't know if you're real. I don't know what I believe. But if you're real, if you're there, show me. It was the first time in my life that I experienced the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit. I knew the very moment that he entered into that room with me. Peace. Peace as I had never known it before. Peace when it didn't make sense for there to be peace, and yet there it was. There he was. I surrendered my life over into his capable hands that night, and my life has never been the same. Now, did that experience render my consequences void? Emphatically, no. That would have been nice, wouldn't it? No, I was still kicked out of my parents' house. And I still had years ahead of me of reparations to be made for the damage that had been done because of my selfishness. And it took years, hard years. But God is a good God. Hear me on this, he is a good God. And he is in the business of restoration. He is, after all, a carpenter by trade. Little by little, he repaired my family. 
And while my family has still seen tragedy and brokenness throughout the years since, God has not left us and will continue his work because he is faithful to finish what he has started. This is the goodness of the gospel, you guys. This is the goodness of Jesus. What has been broken can be healed. What was bound for death can be brought to life. We are still responsible for the effects of our choices, but the discipline of the Lord means that he will walk alongside us through that process. And we will always be better for it. Enjoy, you can come on, come back up. I love, I love reading Elihu and Job. Job gets advice from three other friends, and uh, it's not very good advice. And it didn't, didn't give him any answers for why he was experiencing what he was experiencing. And then walks this younger guy who sat quiet out of respect for these older men. And he has such wisdom. In Job 33, verses 22 and 30 through 30, he says this. His, man's, soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousands to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He, man, sings before men and says, I sinned. I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. Do you hear that, guys? It was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Hear those words tonight. He disciplines us so that we may share his holiness. He died for us so that we may share in his life. This is what Jesus has done for us. He died the death we are all as sinners deserving of and so bore the ultimate consequences for our sins. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, the scripture says. Praise be to God for such a love as this. Now, maybe there are some of you in here tonight who find yourselves in this situation. You're realizing that you're walking in disobedience to the Father. Has he told you to do something? have not done it. You've been making excuses and putting it off. 
Do not delay to do what he has asked you to do. Maybe there are some of you here tonight that have distanced yourself from him. You struggle to understand his method and doubt has crept into your heart. Your expectations have not been met and so you find yourself disappointed. Remember his faithfulness. When the Lord fulfills a promise, it will always exceed our expectations. Trust him and be faithful to him in the waiting. Or perhaps, the Lord is speaking to you tonight about a great sin in your life. And you know what it is. You find yourself in a mess that seems impossible to escape. The consequences are too many to count and you're so overwhelmed at what it will take to make things right that you don't even know where to begin. Begin with him. Begin with Jesus, just as I did. He is the first step. He's the only step. Surrender your life into his capable hands. And he will begin to do a work in you that you 